This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. It's deeply satisfying to not necessarily just have creative ideas, but to really be able to back up why they will work with data, sales data, with, you know, trend data, um, demographics, and that there's even more room to play and explore when you're really grounded in the business. And that was what I loved learning about myself the most. I was truly looking forward to talking with Elizabeth Weinstein. I knew with the variety of ways she's worked in the food industry, there was a special thread that runs through the many roles she's held. From assistant to the famous cookbook author and founder of La Varenne, Anne Willen, to her creative food mind as a produce maven at Melissa's Produce. As early as childhood, Elizabeth had a special appreciation for nature's bounty, especially to the things we eat, and even a romantic connection to trees. This is her story. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Elizabeth, it is such a pleasure to have you with me today. I couldn't wait to see you again. <laughs> it turns out that we only met once, and it was about, you're reminding me, eight years ago. Yes. And uh, apparently I had said something to you that was meaningful. So can you remind me of the story? Sure, yes. Um, so I worked for Ann Willen at the time who, like you, has won several James Beard Awards as an author, cooking teacher, and um, founded the Lava Run Cooking School. And I was her editorial assistant. And I came to New York with her um, to the IACP, International Association of Culinary Professionals Conference. And we were hosting a book party for the release of her new book, The Cookbook Library, which is a fabulous history of cookbooks in Europe from the 15th through the 19th centuries and is really great fun. And anyway, we just had this party. We invited a lot of people at sort of an unlikely scene, which was a pub across from the conference <laughs> hotel, but it ended up working out. And um, and I don't remember at all what I said to you or what our conversation was, but I remember that you said to me, you ooze capability. And, <laughs> and I just was like, well, I'll take it. You know, I have no idea what on earth I did to seem so capable. But um, I remember I shared that with my mom and she just thought that that was the best. And she would say that to me sometimes. And every now and then, if I've sort of had a bit of a rough time with something, I'd say, you know, get on with it, Elizabeth. Roseanne Gold says you ooze capability. <laughs> so I love this story. Because it just brings up so many issues in, in, in terms of how we should live our lives, right? I think when you feel something, say it, especially if it's positive. Yeah, right. If you pick up instinctively on something wonderful about another person, tell them. And because you never know the impact that you might um, have, right? Um, and the other 
not really issue, but I think message is really what I mean to say, is that you followed up on that. So seven years later, you're back in New York. <laughs> yes, quite a wrote, long time. You wrote to me and you reminded me. And then we connected. Yes. And I'm so happy. So I'm so happy. Yes. You know, someone said this the other day and it just amused me. It's amazing what can happen when you leave the house. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which means that we really all need to, you know, step outside and step into our lives and, and begin to live out loud and take risks and, and make connections. Because I think it's especially for women in the food world, it's always been about that. Uh, this is the year of the woman, I really believe. It's a very exciting time. But, you know, I'm talking 40 years of trying to um, be acknowledged, not me personally, but just women who were in this industry, who really were not uh, not seen in the way that I think we're being seen now. So it's very mm-hmm. exciting, uh, which is one of the reasons I wanted you to come here and be with me today so we can talk about your career path. Uh, you are a foodie. You were born a foodie. I know it was very meaningful to you that you were five years old when the Hollywood Farmer's Market opened in uh, 1991. And it sounds like if we can go back to your kitchen, of, of your home, uh, who's there? What do you remember? How did this all start for you? In my kitchen, um, I remember the lamination on the floors. <laughs> I think when we're really young, you know, you you have physically a different perspective on things. You're very and, low to the ground. Yes. Right. <laughs> um, and I remember this little tiny step that was just a step into the garage, but I would sit on it a lot and sort of squirrel away some of whatever was being made. The first thing I ever actually remember making were cupcakes. And... Were you making them alone? No, no? definitely not. I (laughs) was making them with my parents, and I believe I took them to preschool for my fourth birthday. Mm. And they had gumdrops on top. And that's sort of all I remember about them. But I'm not one of those people who has precise memories of a small age the way some people really Mm -hmm. do. I don't. Mm -hmm. Um, But rather more snippets, I guess. And anyway, I just remember making those cupcakes with the gumdrops. With my parents. and A nice image. And were your parents good cooks? I know they were very important journalists. Your, both your parents were award-winning journalists for the Los Angeles Times. Yes. Yeah. Um, my mother went to Columbia uh, Journalism School in the early 1970s, and she went on to cover um, the border a lot. And El Salvador spent a lot of time there doing some really scary Mm. serious work in the 70s and um and Impressive. early 80s and my dad the two of them met there and he is the uh worked as the legal affairs correspondent for the LA Times for a long time and so now my father is a law professor at UC Irvine in California and my mother passed away um 3 years ago mm. I'm so Sadly. sorry because it sounds like they were both very important um, role models in, yes. in your life. Yeah, we were very close. Mm. So um, obviously they were real, you know, workaholics, right? And and traveled and and but they found time to uh, make cupcakes with you. What other food memories do you have? I remember. So I had a wonderful nanny who lived with us until I was about six, who was Guatemalan, named Anna, and she made this hocone, which is a wonderful sort of thick soup or kind of stew that is so, so, so green. And (laughs) 
It's just full of cilantro and tomatillos, and it also has chicken in it. But what makes it different, I realize now, from most sort of when you think of like a green Mexican soup and you just pour in the tomatillos from a jar even, you know, um, is that it actually has ground up sesame seeds and pumpkin seeds in it. And they're ground up. So yeah. that becomes the, the thickener mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it has a grounded flavor that balances out the tang of the tomatillos a lot. Mm. And it's really, really wonderful. I don't know this dish at all. How how do you pronounce it or spell it? Uh, it's Hokon, which is J-O-C-O-N. And there's an accent on that second O. And can you teach me how to make that, Elizabeth? I could give it a go. <laughs> I would look forward to that very much. So um, you have been in the food world. Basically, this is really what, what you do. And I know that you're sort of on the be- beginning of, of this journey. Uh, how did it happen that you and Ann Willen um, met each other? Ann Willen happens to be one of my heroes, which is why I made a real point to come to that party. She's an extraordinary writer, uh, made a name for herself. Uh, at a time when there were very few women who were being mentioned, there was Julia Child, there was Madeline Kamen, and very few others. So mm-hmm. Anne was definitely a player. And um, La Varenne Cooking School became a, a very important um, institution in, in not France. And also, if you said that you went to La Varenne, people knew that you uh, were very well educated, very knowledgeable. Right. How, how did that begin? So... The way I ended up working with Ann Willen was through a string of coincidences. I had received her book, The Country Cooking of France, as a gift for the holidays from my parents. They had a friend who had hosted a book party for her, actually, but they had never met her. And that was a big, beautiful book full of big, impressive cloud crowd-pleasing recipes, sort of game and wonderful tarts. And um, <laughs> and I remember looking through it thinking I would make something for my now husband for Valentine's Day, I think in 2011. And for Valentine's Day that year, my dad gave me as a present the New York Times cookbook that Amanda Hesser had edited. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking through that book and just – devouring it. I thought (laughs) that Amanda had had the best job, you know, getting to go through all of these archives of the paper and getting to sort of study the different time periods of the paper's recipes and choosing things that really seemed symbolic and culturally important and writing all of those head notes. And anyway, then I learned that, you know, I looked her up and I had heard of Food 52 and I saw that she worked for Ann Willen. And um, she had been an editorial assistant of Anne's and actually wrote a book about her time there called The Cook and the Gardener. It's one of my favorite books. And But so, I never made this connection. This is fascinating. And so Do continue. <laughs> anyway, so I saw those two you know, I, I realized that was funny and I was like, Oh, this woman Anne Will and I don't really know that much about her and then at that time I was working as kind of the promotions manager for a sadly now defunct but wonderful food website called Zester Daily started by a woman in L.A. named Corey Brown, and um, who's a terrific journalist also who is at the L.A. Times. And Corey said to me, you know, I just got an email from this woman, Ann Willen. She needs a new assistant. <laughs> oh, my God. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, of course I'm interested, you know. And so all of these things sort of just really happened within a span of about 
five or ten days. And that's remarkable. Yeah. So it just really seemed like meant to be. I was headed in that direction. And and I met Anne and I just thought that she was so fabulous. Um, she's this very stately sort of grand dame. Yes, who she is. <laughs> you might worry about being too proper to, but then eventually I just came to realize she has a very wicked sense of humor and is terribly funny and just so venerable. I mean, just wonderful words to describe her. I yeah. agree. And so I know that you majored in comparative literature and, and creative writing. And it's interesting because women who seem to get into this field, um, it, this is a common path somehow, creative writing uh, and also art. So mm-hmm. there is like these two streams, I think, you know, for, for women. So so you were a writer. And what did you think you wanted to do? Or, or was food always, since you were little, and these cupcakes and the gumdrops, was this always? <laughs> I always of, wanted yeah. to be a lawyer, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. And I had this sort of big plan for myself. And I was going to make a lot of money doing some important class action, you know, cigarettes type case or something, <laughs> um, buy a winery in Napa. But it's good to have dreams. Right. <laughs> and I just sort of no longer really felt that I necessarily wanted to be a lawyer mm-hmm. when I was, by the time I was really in college. Mm-hmm. And and what's funny is I, you know, I'd always thought I'd be a lawyer. And Bernard, my, my husband, um, he, we met in college and he studied marketing you know, and now I'm kind of the marketing person, and he's a lawyer, and oh, he actually funny. started his first day of work today in the city. But, so. do you ha- but do you have a winery in Napa? This is the question. No, I don't have a winery in Napa. <laughs> it could happen. I definitely don't have Newfoundlands because I think they would take over my my new little apartment. But so when you were with Anne, um, what were your responsibilities? And I guess by osmosis, you learned so much about food. Yeah. So. Um, when I was with Anne, she was working on this book, the cookbook library. And and did you say that the table of contents actually went from the 15th century through yes. the 19th century? So there were cookbooks in the 15th century. Yes. This, this is the 1400s. Uh-huh. Yeah. There are four early cookbooks. Then one is from England, one is from Germany, one is from France, and one is from Italy. And then she kind of traces the growth of cookbooks through those time periods up to when restaurants really start to exist in France. In, in the 1800s. The 1800s, yes. And really was such a scholar. Absolutely. There are very few people doing that kind of work today, so we really need to uh, really hats off to her. Yeah, it's it's beautiful work. She and her husband were collectors of cookbooks when so they moved from the Chateau in Burgundy, where the cooking school La Varenne had been based, to a home in Santa Monica, closer to one of her adult children, and... They had to shore up the floors of this house to ready it for all of the books that uh, they had. They how many had, do you think they had? I think about 4,000. Mm-hmm. And several hundred of them were antiquarian cookbooks, 200 years old or older. And so I just did a lot of original research. I used a lot of these books, which was just wonderful. Um, I think one day the the publisher was looking for more specific citations for quotes. And I spent one day just trying to find four quotes in German from this one book. And I don't even speak German, you know, (laughs) how how did you do it? I, I looked very closely, 
But what was funny was sort of by the end of it, I I mean, I definitely felt more confident in my French. Um, was that a prerequisite? And for you, for I don't you think it was necessarily French? a prerequisite, but it didn't hurt that I had at least some background in French, uh, which is definitely still better written than than spoken on in my case. But um, mine too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I just would pour through all these wonderful books, and um, I helped create the bibliography, mm. which was an enormous Extensive. task, actually, especially considering going back far enough ago, there are certain inconsistencies that we would never consider today. So the first published edition of a book might have the author's name spelled one way, and it might have a different spelling in the third edition, you know? And so we would sort of have to make a lot of decisions. Were about, those were those actual typos or how, no, how would something like just that happen? Sort of, the author's name. There just were kind of differences and changes in... In translation. In not necessarily just in translations, but mm. if you think about old English, mm -hmm. you know, old used to have an E at the end. True. And now it doesn't anymore. Right. And really, as you're moving through time, a lot of these changes, especially in our language, start to happen. I, in the beginning, found it easier to go through the 16th and 17th century French than I did the 16th and 17th century English because it was so different. Right. One really was a foreign language and the other one you never really Yes. None of us really ever. Right, got to know I know. What I mean it'd been fifteen years since I'd looked at ten years since I'd looked at Chaucer or you know, <laughs> I mean it you really need to kind of get into a certain mindset. And I loved that. I just I loved how tactile mm. everything was there. Um just so wonderful getting to spend so much time with these old books. I ended up reorganizing the entire library. Wow. That was 4, a, big, a big job that she gave me. Um, and she just – all of the books were categorized. And so she had kind of her own little, system? you know, Dewey decimal system. But it was her own system. And so there would be American – would be, you know, A, and then American regional, there'd be like one, two, three, four for, mm -hmm. you know, Southern or uh, Washington State or, you know, Pacific Northwest, all of these different categories. So that was very personal to, to her and the way she thought about food and the way she used these uh, materials. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think everyone, you know, who's listening, I think everyone just in general loves cookbooks so much. So to hear sort of the backstory about uh, when they started and how long they've really been part of uh, history and the world's history is just so fascinating. And for you, you got it was a coupling of your two loves, right? Mm -hmm. Literature and, and food. Right. And most early cookbooks were written for other professional chefs. And I think this is before the word chef even existence, which came into existence several hundred years later in France. But early cooks wrote for other early cooks, all of mm. whom worked for the most part, you know, for very fancy families. Right. Mostly family. Uh, mostly, you know, royal families or papal families, you know, uh, cardinals people like that in, in Italy um, were very important. And, you know, we don't have many records of what common people ate until – going a couple of hundred years later into sort of, as I think, maybe early 1700s, where women's cookbooks started to appear in England. And there were little home books, you know. And community cookbooks and church cookbooks. Right. right. Those don't come around for like another 150 years, I oh. don't think. Yeah. So it's it's just, it's a fascinating way to learn about 
sort of the world and the assumptions and the assumptions about what cooks knew, you know. So um, I was watching last night um, the Great British Baking Show. Oh, yes. And, you know. um, (laughs) People love that. Right. They give them a, a technique challenge on each episode where they'll have to create a dish and they give them all the ingredients that they'll need and some basic recipes. But the recipes are very nonspecific because they're depending on the contestants to know, you know, to have a certain base level of skill. Mm -hmm. And so it'll say, um, you know, make the creme anglaise, bake it, you know, it doesn't say what temperature or what time or, or how to make the creme or, and a lot of these early recipes, you know, are like that, you know, it will say, um, you know, once you've like stuffed the lamb or something, it will say, cook it the right way. And it's just assumed that people knew these things. That's so, right. And today, oh my goodness, if you don't really get so detailed and specified, people are really lost because yes. they don't. Yeah, people not... get upset. Yeah. So. <laughs> yes, yes, they do. I have a fun, quick story that's a great example of Anne's sense of humor also. Mm-hmm. I picked up one Sunday at the Hollywood Farmer's Market a rabbit. I had always been, I'd always loved rabbits. I used to have a pet rabbit, but you know, I thought you've got to get over being afraid of eating rabbit. And this has obviously been a well-raised rabbit. Just buy it and you'll take it to Anne. And so I called Anne the next morning on my way to work in the morning. And I said, Anne, I've got a rabbit. Can you show me how to cook it? And she sounded very hesitant mm-hmm. and said, yes. And I sort of thought, oh, gosh, maybe I've called her too early or something. And anyway, so I show up as usual, but I have this rabbit. Is it a live rabbit? Elizabeth? And Anne says, Thank God it's dead. Oh, <laughs> but was it dead in skin? It was dead skinned. It didn't have a head. It's like when you buy oh, chicken, like chicken at the store. Okay. I mean, it had its feet on, but it didn't have a head any longer. You know, it was totally um, had been butchered. I just wanted to cook it. But she said, oh, thank goodness it's dead. I thought you wanted me to shoot it. And I hate that. that's very funny but you know what but she would have that's why she hesitated i think so i think she really would have but uh and do you remember how you made it do you remember what the recipe was oh gosh i think it involved a lot of red wine (laughs) and maybe some Some for the rabbit and some for Anne, right probably (laughs) and some ginger maybe maybe not i think that sounds right we were using a lot of older sort of flavors then. Ah, so ginger in that sense, not for... ginger in the Asian sense, more ginger in um, the sweet spice clove. Yes, um, exactly. Right. Old I, English. Yes, I think we spiced French. it. Yes. yes, exactly. A lot of those ways with some cloves, grains of, of paradise maybe, yes, mm. which were kind of a precursor to peppercorns actually in a lot of places before they had peppercorns and which are the secret ingredient in my holiday cookies in my gingerbread. Grains of paradise. Well, I love secret ingredients. And when we come back, we'll hear more secrets about Elizabeth's wonderful career. Elizabeth, do you have a cooking or food tip to share? Yes. It would just be to eat more fruits and vegetables. But the part of it that's a tip is not to overthink it. What really, really bothers me is so often I hear people saying negative things about conventionally grown fruit mm-hmm. and or vegetables. And the truth is, is that, you know, I have yet to see a convincing study that says that the amounts of pesticides that are currently 
in FDA-approved conventionally grown foods or, um, you know, the waxes on apples, for instance, or that any of these things are actually harmful to your health. What's harmful to your health is not eating a lot of great fresh produce. You know, what's harmful to your health is choosing things that are packaged instead. And I see this happen all the time. I hear people talk about this. Something you may have seen is something called the Dirty Dozen list, which is a list of uh, things that they suggest people eat organically. And pretty much it's things that could come into contact with any kind of a spray, like blueberries or broccoli, something you don't peel. But often what we've found is that people actually make the choice to not purchase those foods at all, rather than to just buy the conventionally grown version. Mm. You know, they don't mm-hmm. want to spend $4.99 on the organic blueberries, and even if the conventional ones are $2.99, they decide not to buy them at all. And at the end of the day, eating fresh fruits and vegetables is always going to be a good decision. You know, wash them and enjoy them. And don't get too caught up in how it was grown, where it was grown. Appreciate those things if you have the luxury, but never choose to avoid something fresh. Elizabeth, I'm so delighted you're here today because so many people want to be in the food world and the food business, and they don't have any idea about the many possibilities there are. And I think you are an amazing example of this, taking your degree in comparative lit and gone to work with uh, Anne Willen, who clearly also thought you oozed capability. <laughs> and then you went on to another job. Right. Um, I worked for a company called Melissa's Produce for five and a half years, which is a produce wholesaler based out of California that imports all kinds of produce from all over the world, which is fascinating. They're very famous. Yes. Um, there's over a thousand different SKUs. Um, and can you describe SKU? Yes. A SKU is uh, that little code that says what an item is, basically. So, right, so a thousand different products. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So some of them were dried items, and but mostly fresh. And anything that was legal to import into the United States, <laughs> uh, we can or we would bring in. Um, Do you remember some of the most exotic things that uh, Melissa's oh, produce carried? The most exciting thing to me when I first got there was something called a tamarillo mm. or a tree tomato. It looks kind of like an Easter egg that is dyed a very bright red. And it tastes kind of like a kiwi tomato baby. <laughs> um, and Never heard it described that way. It's very good. Something like that. <laughs> and anyway, I realized that they made marvelous, marvelous jam. I was in mm. a big uh, jam making kind of time then. And so I started making huge loads of apricot tamarillo jam. Mm. And no one could ever tell what the secret ingredient was, partly because no one had ever heard of it, but just because it kind of gave this wonderful tang and it brought it brought some acid to it. And I always made jams with as little sugar as possible, which is, I mean, still a lot of sugar, but I would use um, 0.6 pounds of sugar for every pound of fruit. Mm-hmm. And, and very often it's equal, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Yes. Equal is standard for home jam. And I, I mean, store-bought jam, it's a whole other story. <laughs> exactly. But, but I've found that that's kind of the level where I could get jam to set. 
And is this a fruit with a lot of pectin in it as well? And exactly. So mm. it sets up for perfect, perfect jams. And it's absolutely beautiful inside. You cut it open and it's sort of this um, translucent orange that has these pretty black seeds mm. in this shape that kind of reminds me of the wood carvings on a violin. Wow. Or I guess rather the cutouts, not yes, the carvings. But yes. it's it's very elegant inside and very poetic. I I just mm-hmm. absolutely adored them. Um, they're not very easy to find. I they're don't think not I've seen easy them to the find. You can you can find. It's best to call a place like Melissa's mm-hmm. and ask them where they are. Um, and often with a company that is large enough to be, you know. Melissa's is large enough to have access to anything anywhere in the world, but small enough to have helpful customer service that, you know, if you called them, they could send it to you. You know, they're very um, easy to to access. And anyway, if you love making jam, tamarillos are just a marvel. That's a great secret ingredient to know about. And, you know, I think we take it for granted a little bit in 2019 that you can get anything from anywhere almost. But when Melissa's first got started and other comparable companies, this was like a candy store for a chef looking for new ideas and new ingredients and new products. And um, people would know to actually call Melissa's to see what's coming in and what's new and what's interesting and what's, um, you know, evocative. Right. And people still will call and, you know, especially magazines and people always want things from us out of season, which is very funny, you know. So the the PR guy will say, um, well, you know, someone just called me asking for cherry blossoms, you know, but it's November. So <laughs> there's only so much I can do, you know. But, but would, would, would Melissa be able to find it? Was everything cherry possible? Blossom? I from someplace in the world? I don't, I don't know, know if the flowers would last. Yeah. So interesting. I used to do a lot of uh, recipe developing for magazines. And the famous one, of course, was it was not always easy to get cranberries, you know, for your Thanksgiving story. So you would have to buy them and put them in your freezer. Right. You know, many packages of them uh, in in June, Mm -hmm. uh, anticipating this for uh, a photo shoot, right? Because the magazines usually work like six months, six months ahead. So you took uh, your experience from Anne and you brought it to Melissa's Produce and you were in charge of, you sort of became an influencer for them or in charge of... um so Melissa's was a company that mm-hmm. doesn't have any job titles, I see. which can be liberating and frustrating, um, as one might imagine. But what I ended up realizing at Melissa's was that I actually had a head for business, which was a surprise and a delight to me. When they interviewed me, um, you know, someone said, well, what what are you bad at? What do you not like doing? Mm. And I said, spreadsheets, just keep me away from Excel. You know, I'm not interested And anyway, once I got there, I think I sort of realized I started to get a little bit of a reputation maybe as being kind of a pie-in-the-sky creative. Mm. And because I would just say things like, well, well, why don't we just create a new fresh herb blend that we can sell for summer barbecuing, you know, and put it in new packages or this or that. And people would say, well, just you have to understand that sometimes these things take time or there's a history of sales or maybe we've tried something like this or there was a comparable product in another store. Or So working at a company like Melissa's really is a fantastic career path for someone. Yeah. Maybe it, an area someone wouldn't necessarily think about. It absolutely can be. We We just got, we had all kinds of opportunities to get people to to try more things. 
My favorite program that I developed while I was there was something called Freaky Fruits. <laughs> what and is that? And so, you know, Halloween, October was never – wasn't the best month for produce sales. There were pumpkins, but, you know, it's not like the Super Bowl when everyone stocks up on – uh, you know, potato chips, right? Well, no, I was actually thinking of those vegetable platters and and guacamole and stuff. You know, True. there there aren't that many dedicated things um for produce, and it's also the one time of year when people actually like things to be ugly. You know, people uh, spend hundreds of millions of dollars every year, astounding amounts of money on Halloween decorations, including you know things like severed heads and scary you know zombie hand candlesticks and just the weirdest True. stuff. You know. At the same time, people love throwing parties. They want to impress their friends. They're afraid their kids are going to eat too much candy and eventually could get type 2 diabetes. There's all <laughs> kinds of aspirations and concerns and a willingness to explore that seems sort of per particularly bundled up with Halloween. And so we found a way to, I guess, exploit that, you know, basically, which was by creating this terrific program called Freaky Fruits. And so I set up brainstorming session where we created a lot of different ideas of ways we could use tropical fruits in Halloween-specific recipes mm. and recipe cards. Fantastic. Because a lot of tropical fruits are really um, have great availability at that time of year. You know, we did all kinds of things, and but we really ended up selling a lot of tropical fruit that so time of year. room for great creativity here. Absolutely. Which is, which is fantastic. Yeah. What I have found is that it's deeply satisfying – to not necessarily just have creative ideas, but to really be able to back up why they will work mm. with data, sales data, with, you know, trend data, um, demographics, and that there's even more room to play and explore even when you're really grounded in the business. And that was what I loved learning about mm. myself the most at Melissa's, I think. From Melissa's, you went on a nine-month honeymoon I <laughs> around did. the world. This is really remarkable. I did. At first, you know, I said to my husband, what if we took a honeymoon that was a month long? You know, what if we went to India for a whole month? What if we – and it just kind of grew until I was like, well, what if we were just those people who, you know, you read about online and it's like this couple dropped their jobs and <laughs> stability to go travel the world. And and we just sort of decided that we could become those people. And – um you know, we'd, we'd both lost a parent to cancer in the last five years and it mm. had just – we just decided to go on vacation for a really long time. And <laughs> we were really fortunate that we were able to do that. Um, and was it a bit of food obsession? Was food a big part of this or was it really more about culture and just traveling? And, and It was just about everything, honestly. Just about everything. It's wonderful. It, it was just about wherever we kind of showed up and what we found. We had – Wonderful food in Korea. I think that was our favorite country to eat in. And we had, I think, the most memorable meal of the entire trip was actually in the Philippines. Um, this was the day after Christmas. We hiked into a tiny town called Batad that is a rice paddy's town. And the rice has been grown there the same way for probably 1,500 years. Mm. And you you can't drive into this town. You have to hike in like a mile down a path and then really hike down what's practically just like rocks sticking out of a wall. I mean, like to get really deep into this town, it was 
a insane Sounds workout. Sounds a bit treacherous. It yes. really was. <laughs> um, For a meal. Yeah, they sell t-shirts that say, I survived Batad Rice Terraces. <laughs> and we did a lot of hiking that day, and we were totally exhausted, and... When we finally found the little hotel where we were going to stay for the night, we looked at their menu. We wanted to, you know, get some water and just sit down for a minute before we set off for a big hike. And we saw um, snails on the menu, snails and clams. And we said, oh, like, that's so interesting. Where do the clams come from? And they said, oh, they come from the rice patties. Mm. And so we're like, okay, like, you know, we'll have that for dinner later tonight. And so... We go on our hikes, we get back, and we see these two little kids, maybe four and six, scrambling around in the rice paddies, 15 feet from where we're sitting, pulling clams and snails out of the water. Mm. And they literally get hosed off by their mom, you know, before she cooked them. Not, sorry, she didn't cook the kids, obviously, before she cooked, (laughs) (laughs) before she cooked the snails and the clams. And we had this beautiful, hyper-local meal of rice that these people had grown from the rice patties with um, just simple seasonings, a little bit of onion and ginger that Mm. they were growing right there. And then these snails and clams. And it was so beautiful that every element of the meal just came from this little place. And it was so hyper-local in a way that was so utterly untrendy. Mm. It wasn't, you know... You're going somewhere where a famous chef has worked hard to create a program where everything is in one place and someone's getting lauded for doing this and that. And I mean, I'm not saying I'm against that. I think that's all wonderful. But just to realize how, you know, we'd we'd had to walk several miles to get there. And these people didn't walk out to go to the next village every time they wanted something to eat. This was how they ate. And it was how they had always eaten. And there was just something so beautiful about experiencing that thank you and so remarkably authentic yes right and this is maybe the way it always was all around the world thousands of years ago this is you ate in your zip code it's as Mm -hmm. i like to say and this is even closer uh thank you so much for that beautiful memory follow me on instagram at roseanne gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosangold.com. Elizabeth, you've been in the industry for about 10 years doing a variety of things. Uh, What's next for you? I'm trying to figure out what's next for me right now. I've just moved to New York City about two months ago. And even though I don't have a job right now, I kind of feel like I've never been busier. I've been just reaching out to all kinds of people. I reached out to you. I've been going to a lot of interesting events. I went to the Eater Young Gun Summit, which was fascinating. I met a lot of really neat people there who've connected me with other people. I've been going to events at WeWork Food Labs. Um, I'm signed up for Food and Tech Connect and Slow Money and um, something else that's starting this week at, at NYU. There's a lot of really interesting events going on all the time. I'm going to be working at Pop-Up Grocer in Soho uh, at the end of this month and in the beginning of October. This is really exciting that all of these opportunities are out there. So, Elizabeth, your advice for anyone who wants to be in the food world is to kind of follow in your footsteps. My advice is just to get out there and put yourself out there and, and talk to people all the time. I think that especially when you're new to a place or new to an industry, 
you know, just be open with people. Just be honest. Say, hi, I'm new here. I'm new to this. I'm interested. I I would like to to talk to you. What can you tell me? This sounds silly, but I like to wear um, sort of unusual jewelry or some kind of something unusual a lot of time. I like to make it easy to compliment me. <laughs> I know that sounds really silly, but right now I'm wearing this necklace that's a pretzel. It's like a shiny pretzel and it's like my New York necklace because, you know, it's a pretzel. And anyway, people always seem to say something about it at food events. It's I just like to seem really open and inviting. I don't even really wear headphones on the subway. I'm just always I'm open to talking to people and to connecting with people. And I think that I'm meeting a lot of amazing people and and they're inspiring and and keep introducing me to other amazing, inspiring people. Well, it was so important for me to be able to have this conversation with you because I believe that um, many people who see the food world as their shiny pretzel really need to hear what what's involved um, and that it's possible. And I, I feel from you that you're very optimistic and very hopeful, and I have no doubt that you'll make um, some great connections because you, you really just came back to town after this yes. whirlwind uh, honeymoon. Yeah, so. I, I really did. So it's I didn't have a job title at my last job. I don't know what it'll be in, in the future exactly, but um, you know I'm kind of equally creative and analytical, and that's not always necessarily easy to slot into to a title, but I I love getting people to try and buy new things and and I'm good at it and I will help some organization do more of that sometime soon I don't doubt so Elizabeth the name of the podcast is One Woman Kitchen and you are a woman in the food industry for the last uh, almost decade and uh, will be for decades to follow I'm I'm sure of it uh, what has been your experience as a woman in the, in the industry. My first jobs were all for small woman-owned companies. Um, Ann Willen, who is amazing, Corey Brown, who I mentioned. I also worked for Tate's Bake Shop before they were as well-known. Um, and so for me, it was kind of a surprise to get to a bigger company like Melissa's, you know, which is, of course, named after a woman. Um, but to suddenly work in a large organization with a lot of other people, it wasn't just like me and a woman who was my boss, which mm-hmm. had really been the case for most of my work experience mm-hmm. and the, all my work experience in the food industry. And to a certain extent, produce can kind of be a, a good old boys type industry. Many people grew up in this industry. Their parents were, you know, their dads were produce managers. Their granddads were produce managers. You started in a store needing to lift 40 pound cases all the time, you know, often starts with very physical work. But um my boss there at Melissa's said something wonderful to me when I first started. And that was, in this industry, you're going to find a lot of 50-year-old men with 25-year-old ideas. Sometimes I'm going to be one of them. And you have to tell me when that happens. And I just thought that that was one of the most wonderful things you could ever have someone tell you. You know, both a warning, an invitation, and... Um, you know, kind of confirming that part of why they brought me on was to sort of shake things up to a certain extent mm. and powerful and it was powerful. And I really, really, um, just had so much respect for him for, for saying that. And, um, I think that 
in all kinds of industries, you encounter those people, but they don't necessarily ask you to tell them, you know, when <laughs> when they're doing that. But, um, you know, I think that often there are really good people out there, men and women, who um, who want to encourage younger women, women of any age in their careers. Wonderful. And I love the fact that sort of, uh, you know, intuitively you started working for smaller companies that were owned by women. Um so and maybe that will you know continue right. in, in in your future. So the Hollywood farmers market has is a big theme in your life. You grew up there, and it really has resonance for you. It is a big theme in my life. It opened when I was about five years old, and as I said before, my parents were both journalists. Um, my dad covered labor. My mother had covered the border, um, and I. I think that for both of my parents, when there was an opportunity to sort of cut out the middleman to just interact with the farmer directly, that that was the obvious choice to them. You know, I grew up in a house that didn't eat lettuce or grapes. I marched in Cesar Chavez's funeral with my dad when I was six years mm. old. Um, hmm. And we we just went to the market every Sunday morning. I think some we weren't really religious as a household, but I think that was what we did sort of instead of going to church or temple every week. That was really our special family time. Wow. And there's people I still have relationships with there, you know, who have known me since I was a child. Um, one of them, Tony Thatcher, started the Ojai Pixie Growers Association, which now his daughter, Emily Ayala, runs. And um, I asked him if he had heard of Melissa's after I'd had my first interview there. He said, heard of them. They're my biggest customer. Mm. And, you know, I thought that was that was such a surprise to me, sort of. And, you know, Harry's Berries, which is this marvelous strawberry and tomato and, and bean farm that, you know, pays all of its workers a living wage. It's not temporary work. It's year round. They're doing amazing, amazing things. Melissa's was the first company to bring them to market to make it possible to distribute them, you know, as far as the East Coast. Um, and so it's been a really incredible through line, um, the passion that that I've had for that, that I never would have guessed that I would end up working, you know, in, in that field. Yeah, I'm sitting here shaking my head because um, really in acknowledgement and solidarity with your experience, because I think there will be fruits and vegetables in your future, having had this really beautiful association with your parents in the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Elizabeth, how do people get to connect with you? Sure. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm Elizabeth Rose Weinstein. And you can follow me on Instagram also. I'm A Tree Is Nice, which <laughs> is the name of a children's book from the 50s that's quite wonderful. Tell so, me why you chose that. What does that mean to you? As I said, it's this wonderful children's book from the 1950s. And I first came across it, I think, when I was living in New York City at that wonderful children's bookstore near Union Square. It sort of has a very simple message, which is that a tree is nice, which seems so uh, straightforward, but sometimes the most straightforward things are the most wonderful. And it brought me back to sitting in my loquat tree as a child where I spent a lot of time. A loquat is this wonderful fruit grows in Southern California, and it's not really commercially viable because it's full of seeds. There isn't that much fruit. You have to peel it. It bruises quickly, all these things. But I loved sitting under that tree, and I immediately thought of that. And I think there are a lot of special trees I've seen in my life. You know, sometimes you'll go somewhere and 
you'll just think that's a wonderful tree. And I don't know, I, I think that, um, and I can think of 10 or 15 special trees sort of off the top of my head that, that I love. But anyway, the message just really sort of seemed right to me. And it's a lovely book. I'm sure people are going to want to follow that and follow you. And as I ask all of my guests, Elizabeth, as you probably know, what does One Woman Kitchen mean to you? I would say that to me, I mean, I, I love this phrase, one, one Woman Kitchen. I think to me what it means is that at the end of the day, no matter who all of your supporters are or even, you know, your detractors who can be equally great motivators, um, that at the end of the day, you're responsible for your own actions, your own decisions. And, you know, you're the one who is always going to be your best advocate. And it can be easy to get into a little bit of a funk sometimes. I, I'm sort of going through cycles of that <laughs> right now. But, you know, you're always responsible for 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 yourself. And and that's a good thing. You know, that's a great gift that we we have. There was a time not that long ago when women didn't have as many choices to make. And so even though to a certain extent those may be more limited still for women than for men, there's a great deal of freedom that we have. And as our own one-woman kitchens, we get to take advantage of that. Elizabeth, that's fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you, Roseanne. And thanks to all of you for joining me and Elizabeth in my kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosangold.com. And if you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Connect.